as I make the uh, transition from guitar to the pulpit, uh, I'll let you in on a little secret. I'm not a real musician. Uh, I play guitar up here, but it's only by the grace of God He's made me just just sufficient enough to play up here. And uh, maybe that's to keep me humble. But uh, Bruce and Jill, they're the real ones that, that know what they're talking about. I have no idea when it comes to certain things. Uh, but uh, similarly, uh, I'm not the pastor. Um, Jim is the pastor, and he's, he's the, the natural preacher. I'm not a natural preacher. Um, I believe God put something on my heart today uh, to, to preach about. I'm going to preach about idolatry, but... Um, uh, by His grace, or may, may He give me the grace to be sufficient today in the word that I have to bring to you guys. Um, just, at least just barely. I want to, I want to, uh, try to, uh, I hope the Holy Spirit is able to, uh, speak to you through what I have to say and that God, uh, would be glorified in what my message is today. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Wade Wilson. Um, I'm an elder here at Trinity and Today, uh, Jim and Krista and the Lehman family are um, on a vacation, a well-deserved little break. And I hope that uh, you guys will pray for them and that they will be rejuvenated and restored. And just uh, that, that this little break for them would, be, would do them some good. Um, also, before I start, I'd like to thank my wife, Stacy, uh, who for the past several days has done a lot to allow me to be able to sit down and write this sermon. Um, with my work schedule and things like that, she's done a lot to take care of the kids to allow me to uh, write this sermon. I'd also like to thank a, a dear friend of mine. His name is Tom Klein, and he recently passed away. Um, Tom Klein was big into discipleship. He discipled me for a long time uh, in this church, and... Uh, I owe a lot of things to him. Uh, my message this morning was inspired by him. Parts of it are direct quotes from him. You may recognize those of you that knew him. Uh, and Tom was always bold to speak the truth in love. And I hope I am able to be as bold as I ought to be this morning. Let's open in prayer. <clears throat> Jesus, we come before you recognizing that we are in need of the only true God. Help us this morning... Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would lead us and lead me and guide me in everything I say, and that there would be ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us as we explore this topic of idolatry. Amen. I'm always impressed with the words of Isaiah that are found in chapter 6. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I want you guys to understand that many times when preachers preach up here, uh, we have to keep this verse in mind because uh, we are all sinners and we all have unclean lips. We may be preaching to you, but we are also preaching to ourselves. This morning I'm going to be speaking about idol worship. I know most of you in this congregation pretty well. And if I were sitting in your seat, I would say, what is Wade talking about? I don't worship any idols. I don't have a totem pole in my backyard. I don't have a little Buddha or a shrine. I don't even have a yard gnome. <clears throat> well, before you tune out, I've been walking with the Lord most of my life. Uh, and uh, I was raised in a Christian home, so I've been in the church most of my life, which is a, a wonderful thing. I've been very blessed by that. 
Um, I've also been in a leadership role in this church for over 15 years. God has given me a very analytical mind. And one thing that I observed over the years is that Christians are pretty good at denying sin in our lives in general. I think many Christians, when it comes to idols, are actually oblivious to the fact that they worship them. Many of you this morning are probably thinking, I'm a Christian, I don't, I don't worship idols. I'm not too good at being politically correct, and I don't beat around the bush much. And some of the idolatry I point out this morning may hit pretty close to home for some of you. And I pray that you hear me out uh, before getting defensive and dismissive about what I have to say. Uh, I will do my best to speak the truth in love. The propensity to suppress the truth of our sinful acts grows as we learn more religious lingo or jargon or catchphrases that we pick up in church. Some of us can even use the veneer of scripture memory to hide the sin we know is in our heart of hearts. Jesus spent a lot of time dealing with guys like this. Remember the Pharisees? I believe it is safe to say that we have plenty of Pharisees in the church today. In fact, most of us talk like Christians better than we walk like Christians. Idol worship is a very important subject to God. Bruce kind of touched on this in his prayer, but God designed man at his core to be a worshiper of him. How many of you have heard the catechism, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There isn't a tribe on earth or a civilization that hasn't worshipped something. The Romans had their gods, the Egyptians had their gods, the Greeks, uh, people in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. I mean, everybody has worshipped something, every civilization, uh, even in the middle of the Congo, they discover. Um, God designed man to worship at his core, but he wanted them to worship the one true God and worship him alone. There are, by my count, 110 references to idols in the Bible. Sixteen of these are in the New Testament, and mostly those were mentioned by Paul. This does not include false gods, just idols. We don't need to go and visit each and every one of these scriptures today. You can if you would like, but I think it's safe to say if we visit one of the first things we ever learn in Sunday school, the Ten Commandments, we can pretty easily figure out that God has a big problem with idols. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is you shall not make any idols. Uh, there you have it. Okay, so in the Old Testament, most of the idols were sticks and stones and golden calves and, and objects of worship. <clears throat> if you could turn with me in your scriptures to Colossians 3, where we read about living as those made alive in Christ. Therefore... If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature be it sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. Right there it says, which amounts to idolatry. It is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Now, how many of you have read this verse a bunch of times and never realized that it says uh, that 
certain actions, ideas, and thoughts amount to idolatry. Um, as with many things in the New Testament, uh, they elevate uh, above those things from the Old Testament. Um, but before I go into this study, <clears throat> I want to make one point very clear. Sometimes while preaching, uh, it's easy to zone out because of the details or my monotone voice or uh, just losing sight of today's message. But I, I want to make one thing very, very clear. Uh, if, you, if you don't remember anything else, God, our Father, has a big problem with idols. Ezekiel has 35 references to idols. Ezekiel pretty much goes after everybody, but primarily he goes after Israel, the church. Ezekiel actually has a whole chapter dedicated to the idolatrous problems within the church. He has another chapter dedicated to the idolatrous problems with leaders, national leaders. We're entering an election cycle, uh, think we might have a problem with that maybe, <clears throat> and that might be relevant today. Let's read what Ezekiel says because he put another twist on this that's a little bit different. So Ezekiel was a prophet. He was writing in the first person on behalf of God in chapter 6, verse 9. He says, I was crushed by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and their eyes, which have lusted after the idols. Do you see God as a person? He's our Father. He's not a concept. He's not a theology. He's not a doctrine. He's not a creed. He's not a system of beliefs. He's our Father. <clears throat> and as our Father, He has feelings. And when we, His church, go after idols, it actually says it crushes His heart. Please keep that in mind as we go through this this morning. This isn't just a word study. We're talking about a relationship with the one true God. Okay, I want to make four points, four main points about idolatry. Idolatry, first, is a heart issue. <clears throat> it's more than just sticks and stones. It's what's in a person's heart. Mark chapter 12, Jesus said, The greatest commandment is that you are to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. You see, in Hebrew thought, the soul, mind, strength, <clears throat> all those things were essentially the same thing. What Jesus was telling the scribe, was that you need to be single-minded in your devotion to me, the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition, idolatry is also a priorities issue. So number two, idolatry is a priorities issue. How do we determine our priorities? A good place to look is what occupies most of your time and money. A brief survey of your bank statements or a glance at your smartphone usage log or you're recently seen on Amazon Prime or Netflix, might be a good indicator. Jesus was always good at getting to the heart of the matter. In his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 33, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added unto you. Most Christians get this exactly backwards. We are really good at looking for the things that will be added unto us, instead of seeking the kingdom of God first. <clears throat> we get the cart before the horse. Why? Because it's easier. In, this, in the Sermon on the Mount, why did Jesus spend so much time on saying, don't worry about what you eat or what you drink or what you wear? It's because those things are the things that will be added unto you. So idolatry is a priorities issue. We also read in chapter 6, he says, don't lay your treasures on earth, lay them up in heaven. That's going to be a key point today. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. 
Where you spend your money, there your heart will be. Where you spend your time, there your heart will be. Food, clothing, shelter, money, those are all important things. Idolatry is a priorities issue. It's getting things ahead of where they should be. We have to constantly seek after God. It's a process that we must always do. We are all recovering idolaters. Point number three is idolatry is a worship issue. In Romans 1, Paul summarized man's idolatrous worship issue by saying, Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. And God gave them over to the lust in their hearts to impurity, for they exchanged the truth for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Point number four. Idolatry is a philosophical issue. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this one because few people in America worship graven images any longer. Ideas have consequences. We looked at Colossians 3 earlier on, but I'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty position that is raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Let me say that again. We are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. <clears throat> um, in the New Testament, idolatry can be so. So, in the New Testament, idolatry can be certain thoughts, actions, ideas, philosophies. Let's see Paul in action on idols of philosophy. In uh, in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to Athens, and it says. His spirit was provoked within him and as he was observing the city full of idols. So he began to reason, and he conversed with the Stoic philosophers. This, pl- this place, Athens, was the academic center of the world at this time. Verse 22 says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship is in ignorance. They didn't even know what they were worshiping. He's telling these educated guys, y'all are a bunch of idiots. They were intellectual idiots. We don't have any of those around here, though, do we? Uh, not, Not in this college town. There are many Christians today who worship subtle idols of philosophy in ignorance. I'm going to get to some of those in a few minutes, but let's continue to read Paul's confrontation with these so-called wise philosophers. You should not think of God as being like gold or silver, an image formed by art or thoughts of man. Notice that God is not an image or a thought. Paul continues, Therefore, having overlooked these times of ignorance, God is declaring to all men, that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, giving proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In Athens, do you know what one of the greatest displays of beauty and religious idolatry was? It was the Parthenon on top of the Acropolis. I'm sure some of you guys have been there to see it. 
Picture this. Paul is standing in the marketplace of Athens with the Acropolis in the background behind him. This huge pagan temple at the top. And Paul begins his message by saying, God, being the creator, doesn't dwell in temples made of hands. Paul did not come to Athens to try to relate with the Athenians. He didn't come and say, well, you tell me a little bit about what you believe, and I'll try to see if I can figure out a way to weave in the gospel message. Uh, he, Paul, what he did was he brought a point of contrast that was nothing short of a head-on collision. Paul immediately confronted the idolatry of Athens. The text tells us that what began the whole encounter was that his spirit was provoked by their idolatry. Therefore, God, having overlooked these times of ignorance, now commands all men everywhere that they should repent. The word repent literally means to have a change of mind, to turn around your thinking. God orders you to stop thinking like this. Stop creating idols like this. He wants you to acknowledge that he is the creator. He wants you to acknowledge that he is the sovereign, he, excuse me, that he is the one who sovereignly is in control of all things and that all of us should depend on him alone. He is the one true God. Uh, God has given proof to all men that Jesus will be their judge. Uh, God is angry with sinners, and we're going to have to answer to that if we don't repent. The church today doesn't preach that message much, and that is because I'm not convinced that the church is angry, or the church believes that God is angry with sinners. Uh, A lot of times we hear God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Well, I've got news for you. Uh, The sin's not going to hell. The, The sinner is if they don't repent. The message that we hear today is often God is so distressed that people are living unfulfilled lives and they don't have enough self-esteem that they need to live their best life now, etc., etc. You can't expect a church that believes that about God to have the forcefulness of Paul. They are never going to have the boldness of Paul to go out into the world and to defend the faith and to cast down the idols of this world because they don't understand who God really is. But Paul did, and because he understood who God was, he was provoked by the idolatry in Athens. He didn't look the other way and just say, well, that's just business as usual in Athens, or, unfortunately, that's just business as usual here in our church. He confronted them and reasoned with them about how unreasonable their sin is, how unreasonable their rebellion is. And then we need to tell people that God is not playing games. He expects you to repent. He wants you to quit messing around with these foolish idols, whether they be sticks or stones or thoughts or ideas. It is your thinking that has been made foolish. It is your life that is under God's judgment. Have I set the table? Can you guys see that this is an important issue? We could go back and look at the Old Testament and review how God brought down individual people to families, to cities, to empires, empires much greater than America because of their idol worship. Many times he sent prophets that warned them over and over and over. Folks, don't think for a second that we Americans have idol that we Americans don't have idol problems on a national level all the way down to our own individual struggles with idols. What are some of the idols we face in our day-to-day lives? I'll state the more obvious ones and then I'm going to point out some more subtle ones as well. The gods of Canaan were sex, money, and power. There's nothing new under the sun. 
Can anybody think of where we might find these idols today? Hollywood, maybe? Does the name Harvey Weinstein ring a bell? In the world of politics and banking, does the name Jeffrey Epstein sound any alarms? Have any of you taken a look at the people that he invited to his private island? It's disgusting, it's sickening, and it's chilling. Uh, Let me go into some of the other modern idols. Uh, Most of us understand sex, money, power pretty well. I could spend a sermon on each one of those, but I'm going to go into some that we might not hear as much. Let's go uh, some of the more subtle idols. Uh, So let's do some self-evaluation as I go through these. And ask yourself, where is your heart? Where are your priorities? And are you loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? First, I'm going to talk about humanism as an idol. There are several points to this, but humanism, it was the original lie, which has been repeated in many shapes and forms, as it was told by Satan in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. He said, God, basically, he said, God is holding out on you. He's not giving you everything that's out there. If you take matters into your own hands, you will be able to make decisions and you can be like God. You can be free. You can have an open mind, follow your heart, explore your thoughts and feelings. Some of you might be saying, well, what's wrong with that? Well, folks, I think that just goes to show you how deep the lie has become. Believe it or not, humanism is very well represented in the church today. Did you know that humanism was confirmed by the Supreme Court as being a valid religious belief system back in, back in the 1960s? If you look closely enough, I believe that humanism has taken over as the official religion of this country. How has it taken over? <clears throat> in large part through our, through our children. The Humanist Manifesto was a document written to usher in religious movement to replace the previous, position, the previous belief system that was based on God's divine revelation. The most important of the 34 signers of this document was John Dewey. You may not have heard this name before, but essentially he created the public school system as we know and see it running today. The religion of humanism is the foundation of our modern public school system. Listen to this quote by John Dewey. There is no God and no soul. Therefore, there are no props of traditional religion. With dogma and creeds excluded, absolute truth is dead and buried. There is no room for fixed natural law or permanent absolutes. Teaching children to read is a great perversion, and the high literacy rate breeds destructive individualism. Let me read that again. Teaching children to read is a great perversion, and a high literacy rate breeds destructive individualism. The child does not go to school to develop individual talents, but are prepared as units in an organic society. The change in moral school atmosphere are not mere accidents. They are necessities of the larger social evolution. Another famous humanist involved in the public school system was C.F. Potter. He said this, Education is the most powerful ally of humanism, and every American public school is a school of humanism. What can the Sunday schools meeting for an hour once a week, teaching only a fraction of the children, do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? Folks, that was from 1930. The roots run very deep and are very subtle, but they are effective. 
Now, I'm not trying to stand up here and give my opinion of the public school system. I just read a couple of quotes from its founders. I'm not trying to condemn people for sending their kids to public schools, but I feel a duty to make the church aware when I read quotes like these, and there are many others. Uh, the, the main problem, I think, is, is that we think that the public school system is neutral, and I'm here to tell you that they are not neutral. They are institutes of the humanist religion. Homeschool can be an idol, too. The us for and no more attitude, the hide out in our own little world, act like our house is a bunker, takes precedent over biblical truth. We are to be in the world, but not of it. There is no biblical basis for retreating. And I believe that there are folks out there in the homeschool community who have retreated. They try to be as secluded as possible from the world, and that is not biblical. Christian or private schools, can they be idols too? For some, that school's bumper sticker pasted to your bumper serves as a status symbol. I've also seen firsthand people that send their kids to Christian schools so they don't have to parent, so they can be lazy. Wherever your kids go to school, you still have to be involved, an involved parent and raise your kids in fear and admonition of the Lord. There are plenty of bad ideas coming out of the Christian and public school systems, too. It's not just the public school or homeschool. The reality is it's hard to find a good, faithful seminary these days if you want to go become a pastor. <clears throat> okay, humanism. <clears throat> we can be like God. Most of us sitting here today know that's not right. But if you have been in the ministry long enough or in the church long enough or worked with Christians long enough, you have run into this idea that is in the church. Nobody tells me what to do. It's just me and Jesus, praise God. I don't have to listen to anybody, my elders, my pastor, my parents. I can make my own decisions. Rebellion is a practical outworking of humanism. Sometimes we call it rugged individualism. I'm an American. I can do it on my own. The church is not a collective, the church is not a collection of rugged individualists. It's a family. It's a group of people united in Christ. That is the way Jesus started it over 2,000 years ago. Jesus made disciples. A disciple can't be a solitary figure because it's a relational thing. This means we need to spend consistent time with other believers and build up each other in Christ. There is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. Another lie of humanism is equalitarianism. That's a big word, but basically, you've heard it before. For you diehard Declaration of Independence and Constitution-loving conservatives, listen up. All men are created equal. All men are created equal. Is that in Scripture anywhere? No, it's not. You know where that comes from? That's a French idea. That's French thought coming out of the Enlightenment. It is not a biblical idea. The only way we are created equal is that we are born sinners, and without Christ that we have fallen short of the glory of God. God didn't create all men equal in terms of gifting and callings. Don't you see? Paul spent so much time talking about unity and diversity. We need both. We aren't all a bunch of equally created robots. But equalitarianism is a humanist philosophy that has made its way into the church, and and we need to be on guard. While I'm on the topic, I'll just throw out this one-liner. Some of my conservative friends know the Constitution better than they know their Bibles. 
this might be you, repent, straighten up, and study God's Word. <clears throat> Moving on. How about idols of mammon, better known as idols of money? Most of us know that the love of money is the root of all evil. Of course, a lot of times when you hear that quote, people take out the love of money and they just say, money is the root of all evil, which is also not correct. The problem is not money. The problem is, where's your treasure? What priority does money have in your life? We all need money. God knows that. We need food and clothes and shelter, etc. God knows that. But I'm going to look at money, the idol of money, in a little different way than you might be used to hearing from the average pulpit. How about the idol of socialism? Socialism is a very fancy term for I have a gun and I'm going to forcibly take money away from you and give it to somebody else I think needs it more than you because I think they should have it more and you should have less. Oh, and by the way, there's going to be a hefty fee for handling the transaction. That's socialism. That's not biblical. There are a couple of passages in the scriptures that liberals try to misconstrue and skew into uh, thinking that the Bible talks about socialism. Maybe one day I'll do a series on biblical economic ethics, but today I'm preaching on idols, so I'll just go with the easy proof text and move on. The Eighth Commandment is the foundation of private property. You shall not steal. All right, how about the idol of covetousness? Anybody here think that we have a credit card or consumer debt problem in America? I'm not going to assume anybody in this group has that problem, but theoretically speaking, the sin of covetousness has a lot to do with our debt problem in this country. Essentially, debt is buying something that God didn't give you the provision for. It's so easy to get money. Well, yep, the idol of money is easily served these days. Again, I'm not talking about the substance. I'm talking about the condition of the heart. I know most people have mortgages. I'm not condemning you if you have a mortgage. But some bite off more than they can chew with their monthly payments just so that they can keep up with the Joneses and show everybody else and show off. Consider this. The word mortgage comes from the root word mort, which literally means death pledge. Mortify, mortician, mortality, mortgage. A little food for thought. I had to counsel a friend of mine one time that was having family problems because he was broke. Not only was there the usual rent payment, but he had uh, he went out to eat for almost every meal at every time of day, uh, whether it was breakfast, lunch, or dinner. He had a truck payment, a four-wheeler, a jet ski, a speed bike, golf course membership, cable TV, and so on and so forth. He was barely able to make his minimum monthly payments on all of his loans. He had a covetousness problem. The bank said he was approved for all of these loans, but in reality, he was drowning in debt. He was controlled by his debt, and he was slave to the lender. <clears throat> Remember, this is a heart problem. <clears throat> Idols of nature. As Christians, we should have a biblical view of science versus science as a religion. It's safe to say that evolution requires faith. I actually believe that evolution requires more faith than faith in our Creator. The truth is, evolution is just self-deception for the person that believes in it. It was an idea created that attempts to use the facade of science 
in order that they may suppress the truth and unrighteousness that God created the world the way he said he did according to his holy word. If I had time in today's sermon, I could even make the case that evolution does not meet the qualifications for a scientific theory. We've all heard that it's a theory. Maybe another day I'll make the case that it doesn't even have those qualifications. In short, evolution is a religion and an idol to people, and it takes great faith to believe that this whole universe was produced by the circumstance of chance and time. The Green Movement. After failing to get reelected politically, Al Gore became the priest of the Green Movement, the priest of Mother Nature. Have you ever wondered why they try to personify the Earth? Why call it Mother Nature, a term that even most Christians have been suckered into using? Mother Nature is not a biblical term. In fact, God's Word emphatically states that the Lord God Jehovah is the one who controls the powerful elements He created. Folks, the Green Movement is religious. If it wasn't, why the passion, emotion, and enthusiasm? Why can't we just use, why can't, when we're in discussions with them, why can't we use reason and logic? Do you realize that it's impossible to dissuade somebody using logic when they have come to their conclusion emotionally? All right, this next idol strikes most close to home because most of us here live in the South. Americanism as an idol. I think that if you survey the Western evangelical church, you'll find that there are many problems there. There's a theology which I like to call the country music theology. It consists of Jesus, Mom, America, and apple pie, and sometimes trains. That's the tip of the cap to you real country music fans. They are confused about what is biblical and what is not. There is confusion between Americanism, manifest destiny, and biblical truth. God is not beholden to any nation. God is not sitting on his throne waving an American flag. I'm an American. I'm special. We're going to be okay because God has blessed this country. And you know what? I think God did bless this country. But our actions and our idol worship cannot be overlooked. God does not owe this country any loyalty. We are under the same standard of his word as any other nation or empire that came before us or will come after us. Another closely related fallacy is that of political salvation. I believe that we are all supposed to be part of the political process. But some people think that we can turn this country around from the top down if we just elect the right president or mayor or governor. We, <clears throat> I believe that the biblical model of revival is exactly the opposite. We need first to reform ourselves, then reform our families, our church, our cities, then our nation. That's hard work. That takes effort. That takes a lot of discipling, a lot of educating others. It's easier to pretend that if we just elect the right people, all will be okay. All right, this one we probably experienced last night. Sports as an idol. Now I'm sure that I'm not the only guy in here who has struggled with this one. When you go to the other side of town and worship in that great cathedral called Doak Camel Stadium, and the Seminoles don't get their victory, which has been a trend lately, 
Are you going to crash and burn like the rest of the fans around you that live and die by the Seminoles? Where's your treasure? I like sports and entertainment just as much as anybody else. The question is, what impact and priority does that have on your life? I know a lot of people that were on the verge of being devastated if all of college football had been canceled this year. Where's your treasure? I personally think that our obsession and overindulgence in sports has gone a lot, has done a lot to keep men from being effective in the world in what they have been called by God to do. This one might be stepping on some toes here. Uh, Can the church be an idol? It's tempting among Christians to make church more important than Jesus Christ. It can be subtle, but it happens with some people. Sometimes we make obligatory duty-type activities more important than Jesus Christ. Listen, Sunday morning service, Bible studies, missions trips, those are all wonderful things. We're supposed to do them. But a relationship with the living God has to undergird everything we do. If we don't have a relationship with the living God, then we are nothing more than Christian deists. We are living like God wound it up, and it's up to us in our Christian activities to make it happen. If it's not for me, it's not to be. That's not biblical. In a similar vein, some of us build our own kingdoms instead of God's kingdom within the church. Some people build churches for the purposes of expanding their business. It's more of a business and more about making money rather than being focused on the expansion of God's kingdom. Here are some red flags. My personal vision, my personal ministry, my occupation, my profession, my marriage, my family, my children. Can you see the common denominator? My. The tyranny of my. Who are we doing this for? You or God? Okay, so it's your ministry. Who should be glorified? You or God? All of these things are good things God has given us but we must be careful to keep things in their proper place. Husbands and wives, your children are in order at home. Are you teaching them manners and discipline to glorify God? Or does it just make you feel good so they don't embarrass you at the restaurant? Where is your heart? What is your purpose? What are your priorities? Let me reference a scripture to drive this one home. Jesus, speaking in Matthew 6, verse 5, said, When you pray... You are not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners so that they may be seen by all men. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, it's all about glorifying and honoring God alone, not bragging on ourselves or trying to show how how holy or religious we are to everyone. As I begin to wrap this up, uh, John Calvin had a quote that said, our, our hearts are little idol factories. There are so many things that I'm not going to cover today because <clears throat> you can make an idol out of just about everything. I'll name a few. Your job, career, 401K, education, food, hobbies, celebrities, country, race, outward appearance, health, fitness, social media, that's a big one, news, politics, and on and on. Remember, where are your priorities? What is your treasure? 
As I've tried to point out today, there are many things, even many good things, that can become idols if we're not careful. So take a minute and try to be honest with yourself. Are there things in your life that you have placed above God? Is there something in your life that you can think about, that you think about more, that you are more passionate about, that you talk about more, or that you spend more time and money and energy on than God? Even if it's a good thing, that thing might be an idol. Idols always ultimately cause pain, and they lead to destruction. In the scriptures, idols always come crashing down, and so do the people with them. Always. God will see to it. Idolatry never, never works out. Not only that, usually there's a lot of collateral damage. When that idol in your life comes crashing down and you with it, many times it hurts friends, family, loved ones, brothers and sisters in Christ, and usually jealousy and bitterness and anger are stirred up and compound the problem. Don't think that chasing idols in your life are going to work out. It's dangerous for you and the people around you. Most people, you know, most people know about the big idols, and that's why I tried to bring up some of the lesser known and more subtle idols today. Maybe you've been chasing something you didn't realize was an idol. Tearing down idols is a painful process, but they need to be dealt with. It's not easy. Sometimes it puts you at odds with your friends and your family. I struggled on how to end this sermon because I want to put a bow on it. I want to make it cheerful and palatable. My desire is to send you away happy. But that, the, rea- the reality is that wasn't the point of today's message. The point of today's message is the sooner you can tear down the idols in your life, the better you are going to be. Stop wasting your life chasing after false idols that will never ultimately satisfy the desires of your heart. There is only one thing that is worthy of pursuing, and that is God, the, the one true God. If you are looking for success or happiness or love or peace, forgiveness, these are all good things. But none of these things will ever truly be found apart from God. Seek Him first. And all of these things will come at their proper time. If you are not a Christian, this is where we start. We seek after Jesus. You read this book, the Bible. It is a life-changing book. It is a book with power. You have to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Being a disciple of Christ is a slow process of martyring. Those of us on this side of eternity will spend the rest of our lives having the flesh crucified. Our sanctification process will not be complete in this life. Martin Luther says sanctification is the Holy Spirit's work of making us holy. When the Holy Spirit creates faith in our heart, he renews in us the image of God, the proper image of God, so that through his power we produce good works. These works are not meritous, but they show the faith in our hearts. If you want to know more about Jesus, please come and see me or one of the elders. Maybe you're a Christian, but you need help destroying an idol in your life. Uh, I, I, I invite you to come see me or one of the elders. We want to help you. We want to disciple you. We want you to be effective in the expansion of God's kingdom. As I close, I want to make the same declaration that Joshua made. 
As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, not the false gods and idols of this culture. Amen.